Have you ever wondered how the Celts dealt with the invading Romans? Or if Rome could have ushered in the Industrial Revolution hundreds of years earlier? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting TGNReview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, we're at it again. How are you today? I am good. Yes, we're back. This history thing, man, it goes on for quite a while, doesn't it? Like, I thought we'd be done soon enough. There's there's quite a few of these years, like, they keep on happening. It, it, it It's a story that never ends. Yeah, and it just, it's always being made. Things are always happening in history. We don't need to worry about what's happening right now. We're just concerned about what's happening from the years 51 to 60 AD. That's where we are in AD history so far, and we're really starting to make a dent pool, aren't we, in this? It's amazing. We really are starting to pick up traction, and it's been a lot of fun, and we just we just keep rolling here. So, mm. But I know that you have something very special today, but before we begin, let's queue up those good old and obligatory AD history podcast ground rules. What? Evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Patrick, it's all yours. So, if you listened to last uh, the last episode, and I fully implore you to, in fact, I suggest you should start AD History like you would any classic box set, and this relates to box sets, as you'll hear in a moment. Start at the beginning and work your way through. But if you didn't listen to the last episode, that's fine. That I'll forgive you for now. But we talked about the Roman conquest of Britain and how successful that was to the Romans, and Britain was fully under their control. And of course, this changed the British Isles forever. We're still, we're still feeling its ramifications to this day. However, what happened in the there and now? Well, a lot of stuff happened. However, today we're talking about two women who rose up in this time. And like I said, luckily enough, they both appeared around the same decade. They were did their thing, their primary thing they're known for, from around 51 to 60 AD. So we're really happy about that. And this is uh, the two women of Kati Mandau, who... I don't know if many of you guys have heard of. She isn't the most popular figure in history. I hadn't heard of her before I uh, wrote today's episode, before I researched today's episode. But I'm sure you've heard of this other one, Boudicca. She has become one of the most renowned figures in British history, British folklore even. She's slipped into that idea of folklore. And people know Boudicca, even by another name like Boudicca, but we'll talk about that in a moment. And what's interesting about their stories is both of these women stood for completely different things. One of them wanted to oust the Romans and the other wanted to help the Romans. And I'm sure you guys will understand just when I begin going through this story. This is the most Game of Thrones stuff we have covered yet in the podcast. This is like it's been ripped out the pages of Game of Thrones itself. I recently started watching the series and... 
it's just it's like something George R. R. Martin would have risked himself. Well, no doubt he definitely borrowed a great deal from various points in history, whether it be this or the War of the Roses, or even mm. to some degree, I've always thought there was a little bit of that that classic British Civil War from the 1600s. Yes, and this is yeah, yeah. Obviously, this is much further back, but just the themes and how these characters have been portrayed in history just reminds you of some sort of fantasy. It, it's just incredible that this actually happened. But we've got to explain what happened. And before we can explain what happened, I want to set the scene. What happened to these Celtic tribes after the Roman invasion? So after Rome came, saw and conquered as they enjoyed doing, there was really only one thing these Celtic tribes could do to maintain some sort of lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to from what they'd been living the rest of their lives. They had to fundamentally become Roman, and we've talked about this many times in the past. The reason the Roman Empire was so expansive and successful was because they didn't really interfere that much with other people. They went, you're Roman now, carry on doing your thing. If you don't want to be Roman, then you won't be able to carry on doing your thing. That was fundamentally what the Romans said to people. And so to a lot of the Celts, they would have maintained the life they'd known anyway. However, they had to be pro-Roman all of a sudden. They had to form bonds and pacts, give some of their supplies to Rome, give some of their produce to to Rome. It was either that or not do anything at all, or you know, cease to exist probably. And I mentioned this at the start because it was due to Carter Mandau and Boudicca's relationships with the Romans as to why they did what they are most known for. And just a quick reminder on the Celts before we go even deeper with this. The Celts are not one collection of tribes. All people living on the island of Britain would have been Celts and they would have had similar cultures and languages but it just wasn't one blanket tribe called the Celts. There were different Celtic tribes. And this sort of adds to the Game of Thrones factor of it. All. You've got all these different tribes uh, arguing and fighting with one another, forming bonds, forming packs, betrayals, all that sort of stuff. And we're going to kick things off with Carter Mandau's story, as hers actually predates Boudicca, despite Boudicca being the more famous of the two stories. So we only know about Carter Mandau uh, from Roman historian Tacitus, He's the only person to have ever written about her existence. So our knowledge of her is quite faint, but we've got quite enough here. And she was believed to be born sometime in the first century AD. So about the time we started this podcast, she was knocking around this entire time. And she was queen of the Celtic Brigantes people. And just a blanket apology about pronunciation. I've looked into some of them. Some of them weren't as uh, clear to us. As we mentioned, Boudicca's name, we don't really know how that was pronounced either. And her land of Brigantia was in modern-day northern England. That was primarily uh, Yorkshire. So if you look at a modern map of England and see Yorkshire, that was Cartamanda's area. But it stretched beyond that. It would have stretched up to about modern-day Newcastle and even over to the west to modern-day Liverpool. So it was quite a large area of land. And in fact, it was the largest territory held by Celts in ancient Britain. This was the top dog. This was the biggest area, and Carter Mandau ruled it. And it's believed she became queen around 43 AD, which was very close to the time the Romans actually uh, conquered Britain. So all of her rule would have been under Roman rule, more or less. And something quite uncommon about her is that she ruled in her own right. She wasn't the wife of a king and became queen that way. She was the one of royal lineage. 
And she did have a husband. She did have a king, I guess as we'll put it, although he wasn't really king, as we see today with our queen, her husband called king. His name was Venutius. Once again, apologies about pronunciation. We aren't sure if she was monarch or her dad was monarch when the Romans took over, but he or she possibly gave in very easily with little fight to the Romans. So it's thought they, she wouldn't have argued with the Romans at all. She would be like, yeah, I'll work for you guys. And that will come into play with her relationship with the Romans as her story goes on. But what we know for sure is that by 51 AD, Queen Cartimandau and her husband ruled Brigantia as a client kingdom of Rome. And while she was ruling up north, down in the south of England, we had King Caraticus, and he ruled the Catovolani tribe. And his land was in primarily modern Hertfordshire, which is around the greater London area uh, on a modern map. But parts of the surrounding uh, counties of Bedfordshire, Oxfordshire, and like what would be London uh, were under his control too. And if I got that map wrong, we'll hear about it in the comments, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. They always come through. Oh, they will always come through. If you do something wrong, they'll let you know. In 51 AD, so when uh, Katamanda was being a client, was ruling the client kingdom up north, he was leading a resistance against the Romans down south. And while initially this resistance was actually going pretty well, he got surprise attacked by the Romans and he was ultimately bested by them. So this defeated king, Caraticus, took himself and his family all the way up to uh, Brigantia, which in Celtic times, going from around London to Yorkshire, that's one hell of a trek. That's uh, that's insane. And he hoped, he begged Carter Mandel to give them refuge. They should have been beaten. He wanted somewhere to hide, hide from the Romans because... They probably wanted him dead. And of course, these fellow Celtic tribes, they had to stick together. They they didn't like Roman rule. They didn't like these foreigners coming over to their country and taking over telling them what to do. So the Celts really should stick together. However, that wasn't the case. She turned on him. She was fully behind the Romans. She chained him up and sent Craticus over to the Romans, handed him over, take you go, Look how good I am. So when she pledged her uh, support to the Romans, she really did. She was 100% behind them. And it's just staggering to read, especially when we hear uh, how Boudicca treated the Romans, how she thought of them. Just, like, like I said, this is some real Game of Thrones stuff. Well, I can definitely tell you, based on the story you just told me, I don't think all the marriage counseling in the world is going to fix that one. No. And yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about, there's still more of this story to go. And while the Romans adored her for this they loved that she gave her uh, caraticus over to them and they gave her wealth and favors so she was the apple of the romans eyes but this turned her against pretty much all the celts including her own people and she was still queen but very much unliked by 57 ad uh, and while she wasn't too liked her husband venutius was really popular with the people so she still had him at least who was liked by the people However, she left him. <laughs> she got rid of her husband and she formed a relationship with his armor bearer, Villacactus. And the anger, uh, Venturius, I've probably said his name so many times right now, but the anger her now ex husband had for Cartamandau and the Romans led to a civil war. And uh, her ex husband gained support from other tribes to fight his ex wife, Cartamandau, because he was so livid about her uh, leaving him for his armor bearer and betraying uh, her fellow Celts to the Romans. So Cartamandau uh, demanded support 
from the Romans to come help in this battle. And they they didn't do too much. I believe, I haven't written about this here, but Rome had some of their own stuff going on back in Rome, so they really couldn't lend as much of a hand as Cartamandel wanted. Though they did bring some people over, and Cartamandel just narrowly defeated her ex-husband in this rebellion. But he survived, and Cartamandel stayed on her throne just about. And here's a little thing. Her story actually goes beyond our, the time bracket we're covering in today's video. So, but, but we'll still go into it. So what we do know is that she stayed on the throne to at least 69 AD. And all this time, her ex-husband, Venutrius, he waited and he waited. And it was in this year, Rome fell into absolute chaos with the death of Nero. This was a time, I believe, known as the Year of the Four Emperors. Am I correct in saying that, Paul? Yes, that's correct. They come and go in mm. very quick succession over this yes. period. So Rome, back in Rome, is in absolute chaos, and they just can't help Cartamandel all the way over in Britain. And it was in the midst of all this, Venutrius, her ex-husband, attacked Brigantia once again, and his wife called for uh, his ex-wife called for backup from Rome, but there just wasn't enough to help because all the issues dealing with Rome itself. And this led her to flee Brigantium in 69 AD to the Roman city that would become Chester, which is uh, sort of kind of near Wales, still in England, but in Wales. Uh, this left Brigantia to her ex-husband, who finally had to throne to himself, but he only ruled for a short time until the Romans ousted him. Though, what did happen to Cartimanda after her exile? Well, Unfortunately, we don't know. Um, as we mentioned, Tacitus is the only historian who wrote about her, and his writings on her dry up after this. Though she has gone down in British folklore, not as much as Boudicca, as this sort of treacherous evil queen who was a Roman collaborator to turn on her people. And I even read one folklore wraps up her story by saying her ex-husband found her and in revenge burnt her to death. So that is, very briefly... Carter Mandau's story, and it's an absolutely fascinating one, isn't it, Paul? Well, I mean, when you make when you make the Game of Thrones comparison, I doubt you could compare it to, to much else in modern culture insofar as that goes. You know, she really does not get the kind of attention in history you'd expect based on the things that we are learning. Mm -hmm. But yeah. but boy, to talk about politics being a, a death-defying sport. Not that mm -hmm. much has changed in that regard. <laughs> no, and speaking of death-defying, that brings us, us quite neatly onto the next part of this section I'm calling the Women of Roman Britain. And this is the much more famous Woman of Roman Britain. And that's, of course, Boudicca. And the interesting thing about Boudicca, despite how famous she's been, her story only really took place between roughly 60 and 61 AD. So once again, a little bit of our time window for this video. But we're going to talk about it anyway, because we're not going to get a chance to talk about it anywhere else. And we have to. She's such an important figure over here. And her name can either be spelled Boudicca or Bodicea. Um, I will most likely end up using both names in this video. I'll just sort of accidentally flick between the two, I imagine. Uh, so apologies about that. But Different names, same person. She was just that far back in history. We don't know what her actual name would have been. And like Carter Mandel, she would have been born in the 1st century AD. And she was queen of the Iceni tribe of Celts who live in modern-day East Anglia. East Anglia is kind of the lump in the southeast of Britain, kind of near London. It's where Essex is as well. It's where Norfolk is. That's East Anglia for those who aren't mm. as aware. That's where uh, Boudicca... Mm would have resided 
And unlike Katamandau, she wasn't queen by birth. She was queen via her husband, Prestuagus. Um, they had two daughters together, but we don't know their names. They haven't survived the history books. And from all accounts, she was a tall, fierce, striking-looking woman. Loads of red hair draping down her shoulders. And it's that classic image of a Celt. She she defined that. If you think of a Celt, it's most likely her. Like, if you've ever seen the Pixar film Brave, that that's Boudicca. Uh, I can't remember her name in that film, but... That it's is that yeah, even Pixar based a character of that. She's just the definitive Celt in my eyes, anyway. The, the mental image of her, at least for me, it's basically you know, Lenjid being what it is. You almost see her with flames coming out of her head. Yes, yep, yeah. Well, I'm sure the red hair helped with that, but she probably would have been surrounded <laughs> by a, a lot of flames a lot of the time from what she ended up doing. So the Ikeni tribe likely formed a pact with the Romans the same time as Cartamandau did, and uh, the Ikeni became a client kingdom too. Her husband became quite close with the Romans in all of this, and he made a pact that when he dies, his land and wealth will be split between the Roman Empire and his two daughters. So... He actually ended up on pretty good terms with the Romans. He felt he was happy enough to give Rome his empire, at least half of it. And he did eventually die somewhere between 60 and 61 AD. And this pact he had with the Romans and his daughters, of course the Romans betrayed that. Of course they were going to do. And they took over all of his land for themselves. Boudicca and her daughters protested this, but they were taken by the Romans. And there's mixed evidence as to what they did to them. Um, and this justifies why this is a splitted rated podcast, this whole section does. I read they were just beaten, just raped, or beaten and raped. And one source said that Boudicca was beaten while she watched her daughters get raped. So the Romans weren't nice, nice to these people. Uh, so yeah, it's understandable why Boudicca did what she did, which we're just getting on to. And other uh, members of Boudicca's people suffered at the hands of the Romans too. And this, of course, built up a burning hatred for the Romans. As I mentioned about Cartamandau, the Celts, it seems, despite Cartamandau, they weren't the biggest fan of the Romans. They wanted them gone. These people just come over to their country and demanded they live like this now. And when you betray that, when you say, no, I don't want to, you get raped and beaten up, unfortunately. So it's understandable why this anger started to build up in these people. And she rallied other angry members of her tribe and even other tribes. So I imagine before the Romans, these tribes probably didn't get along that well. But the Romans were just this unifying factor. Nothing brings people together better than hating the same thing. That really helps bring people together. And the Romans were that thing. And so... To begin with, to begin their rebellion, they set sight on Britain's Roman capital of Colchester. As uh, we mentioned last time, they set up the city of Col Colchester. It does still stand to this day, Colchester. They called it Cam Ul Ondunum, I believe. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. That's what they called it. That the, the, There's still some Roman stuff in Colchester, even some stuff from Boudicca's time, but not much because of what she did. And to call what Boudicca and her people did to Colchester an attack isn't even fair. The Romans were completely underprepared for this. They didn't know what was happening. It it wouldn't be fair to call this a, it wouldn't be fair to call this a battle or to call this an attack. This was a massacre. 
Boudigan and her army killed everyone on sight. Not only did they kill everyone, they defiled Roman cemeteries, destroyed Roman sites and statues. And as I mentioned, I read that in uh, museums in modern day Colchester, they have remains of like broken statues that were broken by Boudicca and her people. And that's incredible. About 2000 or so years later, we can still go see that. Colchester is definitely on my list now. If you're listening from Colchester, um, let me know, leave a comment or something. I'd love to hear about uh, what, what Roman remains in the country. But anyway, it was it was disgusting, fundamentally, what Boudicca and her people did to the people in Colchester. Absolutely awful. No good. And following this victory in Colchester, Boudicca sacked and killed the settlements of Londinium and Verlagmium, which are modern-day London and St Albans. And something I forgot to mention, I read one place that Boudicca took Roman women, had their breasts chopped off, and forced them down their throats. That's the kind of stuff she was doing. That like I said, this it, it's harrowing. And we're going to talk about this. I've got some questions for me and you to ponder about Boudicca. And a lot of this sort of comes into it. And anyway, she sort of went around the country rallying her people in her chariots, her and her daughters in her chariots. I'm sure you've seen those famous pictures of her in the horse-drawn carriage, chanting away, chanting away, rousing her troops, trying to get people excited to remember why they hated the Romans. And of course, people were shocked to see a woman as a battle leader. That wouldn't have been a thing at the time. Women had a much minor role in the world at that time. So it would have been very surprising to see a woman not only battling, but battling this fiercely. And it is said she would say to her male soldiers, win the battle or perish. That is what I, a woman, will do. You men can live on in slavery if that is what you want. So she, she knew she was a woman. She she played with it. Um, That's what makes her so incredible. However, while it was going so well, the tide did start to turn on her. And in one battle in 61 AD, the Romans had some really good javel uh, javelers, javelin throwers. And it just in a matter of minutes, these javelins just took out the weak arm of the Celts and killed many of them in a matter of minutes. And this is when Boudicca realized this, this isn't going to work. However, she didn't want the Romans to take her life or her daughter's life. So the legend goes she uh, fled battle, drank some poison with her daughters and killed themselves just so their death wouldn't be at the hands of the Romans. So I guess that's some victory in some way that the Romans never killed Boudicca, the woman who did so much damage to them. They never got her herself. And while she wasn't victorious, Boudicca, Boudicca, however you want to say it, has gone down as one of Britain's most famous heroes and warriors and something of a folk legend, despite the fact she was real. Well, you know, my first reaction to all of this, especially in the scenes you've described, is that it's amazing that even after thousands of years, the face of war has yet to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's still all of anger. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. These are mm. These are tales as awful as they are, repeat often when it mm. comes to this form of martial combat, to be sure. And in the case of Boudicca, and basically her major last stand against the Romans, she possessed an army of nearly 200,000 of her own troops. Now, 
that is a massive number. Mm. We haven't we haven't summoned forces of that side uh, much larger in a single engagement. Uh, certainly not in a single engagement since the Second World War. And in fact, just to give a little bit of a way to visualize the size of Boudicca's forces, bear in mind that the first wave of D-Day only included about half that number of troops. So that's certainly something to consider when, when hearing her story. But my first question to you, Patrick, and this is something that's kind of a, I don't know, I, I would call it an instructional moment for all of us, you and I, the audience, that sort of thing. When you're looking at empires or these great hegemons that are, you know, more or less basically uh, subjecting their their influence in one form or another, sometimes it's it's more indirect, sometimes it's full occupation. but in this case, it is a very teachable moment because the way that Rome basically handled them, you know, think about this for a moment. In this case, and we, we saw it last episode, we definitely saw it in this one, where they will make allegiances and, and acquire loyalty from various groups in this area that they're looking to basically subdue and and homogenize and use that as well as the existing frictions and issues between these uh indigenous folks from where they're you know the natives as it were and taking advantage of the way they have issues that even predate you know putting their boots on the british isles and i think mm. we can think of more than a few examples of that in history I know one you and I were talking about, Patrick, um, and of course this is not unique to the British, but it's something I think no. people can really uh, visualize, and, and that is the experience in India. Yes, yeah, we talked about this, uh, and you were saying to me how the way the Romans uh, treated the Celts, or the Britons as they were known as, is very similar to the way the British Empire treated the native Indians when they uh, took over India. And that's really true. And despite, like, we always say the past is a different country, uh, past is like a different country, but you, you do resonate with your history. Um, and me reading this, I hate the Romans after reading about what they did to uh, Boudicca. Uh, how dare they do that to one of my fellow countrywomen? And likewise, conversely, you do feel responsible you shouldn't do i don't do to a massive extent but most nations have some skeletons in their closet you know it's very rarely you'll find a country what doesn't have something seriously dark or awful in its past and a lot of the british empire does contain those sort of horror stories and not the most pleasant things the british did and that i i let's say you feel for your past countrymen and I do feel awful. I look, I, I hear like, you hear people who obsess about the British Empire, like, oh, that was a good old rule Britannia. That wasn't a good time. That The British did some really unpleasant stuff to people in that time period. I mean, you could simply say what goes around comes around. <laughs> that's, that's a simpler way of saying it, but there's much more to it. All Most countries have had, have either been ruled by someone or ruled someone else. And yeah, it is very similar to what happened uh, in India, the Indian experience. 
as you mentioned. Especially when you're, you know, and one, I guess one of the similarities here mm. really happens more early on in the British experience mm. in India. So when you look at things like the Indian National Congress or Mahatma Gandhi or Nehru and all of that, the part that's most notable to most people when they're listening, that's kind of like the end of the crescendo of of what became Indian nationalism over an extended period of time. And this applies to the case of ancient Britannia and the Romans because this was, once again, at a point where there was no real great shared concept of nationhood or or the no. or the uh, or the state as we understand it today which is which is kind of interesting when you stop and think about it, that that's a more more recent concept and and when you're looking at ancient britain had you been facing a united and coordinated resistance effort against the romans as opposed to being able to come in by loyalty you know, set two sides against each other, basically taking advantage of pre-existing conflicts or simply being agent provocateur, that's mm. not at all uncommon, like I said, back early, especially early in the British experience in India. Now, not to pick on the British, but of course, you know, the, the US when we were expanding Feel outward- free to pick to on an, us. We deserve it. We do some stupid stuff. <laughs> we all do stupid things. But the question is, what what do we learn from those experiences? But- in this case, certainly this also happened with uh, Manifest Destiny and the United States pressing West. Mm. You know, there are plenty of political games that happened and, you know, switching loyalties, taking advantage of various conflicts between tribes when it came to our, our, our conflicts going West with Native Americans. So this is something that tends to be in a pattern over time. And in this case, it's particularly demonstrative, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Now, my my first my first straight out question <laughs> to you, and, and this one's a little hard because it falls within the realm of counterfactual history or alternate history, which mm. is something we're actually going to deal with a little bit on, on our next segment. But this is more speculative and really your opinion. Should Boudicca have been victorious, depending on how you qualify what is victory in this case, which is what you and I have to establish? Mm. What do you think the consequences have been? So we'll start first. How do you? How would you define victory in that case? And then we can go on to the second part. So I guess there's two ways you could define victory. I think the one we'll both agree on is kicking the Romans out of Britain, just just getting rid of them. I when I say victorious, that's what I mean. Just just a blanket kick the Romans out of Britain, go back to the way things were. However, I guess you could expand expand that into not only kicking the Romans out of Britain, but Boudicca and her people, her tribe, taking over the rest of the uh, rest of the island of Britain. So there weren't various Celtic tribes; it was just her tribe. Um, I guess if Boudicca was victorious, then yes, um, Britain wouldn't have been under Roman rule for anywhere near as long as it was, as we will see as time goes on. Um, Perhaps if, I think the country even today might be very different. But I like to think what happened if Boudicca wasn't just happy on settling on, okay, I've got my island back. What if Boudicca and the fellow Celts wanted more? What if they started the British Empire a couple thousand years before it actually took off, about 
yeah, over a thousand years before it actually took off. What if uh, Boudicca and her tribes, tribesmen went over to mainland Europe and started invading and taking over more Roman land? They got a lust for this conquering. It could have been a very different map and a very different history, but that's completely speculative. Yeah, that's the thing about uh, counterfactual history or alternate history because, and like I said, we're going to talk more about this in the next segment, but one of the issues that comes with it, especially with historians, is a lot of times they don't like getting involved in counterfactual history or alternate history, which actually I consider different things, but that's a more nuanced point we can get to at another time. Basically, in in this case, and historians generally don't find it worthwhile because they're interested in trying to make an accurate depiction of what happened, and they're far less interested in what didn't happen. Mm. I should say, yeah. it's just kind of yeah, it's just kind of outside their 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 realm of interest. But it is an into interesting intellectual exercise. I would say that it, if for you know creating hypothetically a uh, a far more ancient origin to the British Empire, it would obviously be predicated on Boudicca being able to unite all of the peoples in the British Isle under her, and then ultimately having a desire to potentially expand insofar as they had the capability of doing so. I mean, this was, like I said, this was also very tough for the Romans, and they were very professional soldiers. You know, under different circumstances, um, 200,000, uh, you know, uh, an army of 200,000 troops would be absolutely terrifying. But to Roman legions, you know, they were they were professional soldiers. They knew what to do, and they did it. Um, so it's very hard to say, but for me, at least in far as everything goes, the big thing that would stick out to me is not so much what they did, but what they wouldn't be. And, and that is having all of that Roman influence that is so important to the very sinews that, uh, create modern Britain for 2000 years, because, you know, you know, as much, you know, the Romans at, at times, many times, in fact, we're total bastards, but the, the 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 truth of the matter is that in the long run, was the British Isles better off having absorbed Rome's influence, or wasn't it? And, and simply, that's not a question that's answerable. But to me, had this not been successful ultimately, and had they been kicked off the British Isles, you're looking at an entirely different. British people, maybe even to the point in which they are unrecognizable. A hundred percent, yeah. Just as you mentioned that, well, if the Roman influence didn't last, say if it only did last 30 or so years, or not even 30 years, 10 years or so, 10, 20 years, Britain, it, it would have just been a blip on the radar, but it wasn't. And look, as I've always been stating, the Roman influence on Britain is present to this day. And even like I said, the language I'm speaking um, Paul, both me and you could probably be talking some strange Celtic language if Boudicca kicked uh, kicked the Romans out as early as she did. If that happened, who knows what we would what we would sound like? It is absolutely unknowable and interesting to think about all the same. But my my next question is it's kind of interesting, and and that is, did well? First question is, would Boudicca or uh, Cartamandua ever have known each other or interacted or at least had knowledge of each other so we don't know this for sure when i sort of did some research about have carter mandau or Boudicca ever met i got some sort of like on a, a link on amazon to some 
uh, historical fiction about them meeting. So I think that can probably explain it best. I don't think they ever did meet, but I would love to uh, love them to have done. Like I said, this is so Game of Thrones to me. Like imagine these two queens meeting and arguing. As I said, I recently began watching Game of Thrones season one, so not too many spoilers, please. Don't. I'm not even going to look at the comments now that I've mentioned that. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have uh, uh, Lady Stark and her sister, and these two characters really remind me of that sort of dynamic. I'd love to have seen or at least read about these two meeting, one who loved the Romans, one who detested the Romans, just arguing and battering. I think that would have been amazing um, if we had that in history. At least not, it would make a damn good story, as I saw on Amazon. So I don't think they ever met. Part of me would like to think they did know each other. Uh, We talked about, with Carter Mandau, the king in the south, he traversed all the way up north to go reside there. So geography wouldn't have been an issue. It's not because, like, because Boudicca was fairly south in modern-day England and Carter Mandau was fairly north in modern-day England. But I don't think that would have been an issue. We, we, we have proof, at least speculative proof from Tacitus, that the Celts got around the country. They got around the island enough to meet one another like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if they knew of each other and knew what was going on, just whether they interacted themselves. We just don't know. But we only know about two years of Boudicca's life, her entire story, the thing she's most known for, happened between 60 and 61 AD. It's no time at all. We don't know. I couldn't find any information on her younger years. It just doesn't seem to be there because she wasn't doing anything before that. There wasn't any reason to record her earlier history. So we just don't know. But I'd like to imagine they did. Well, I'm curious, between uh, Cardamon, Dua, and Boudicca, are there any figures in Game of Thrones that actually remind you of? Uh, as I mentioned, Boudicca very much reminds me of Caitlin Stark, Catelyn Stark, uh, Eddard's wife, Lady Stark. And Carter Mandel does remind, I can't remember her name, but Catelyn's, do you remember in the first series? I don't know if she carries on, like I said, no spoilers. Do you remember in the first series of Game of Thrones, Catelyn goes to her sister and her sister has like a young child who's still breastfeeding. It's really weird. Yes, I think I remember that. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of that sort of thing. But yeah, Boudicca definitely... Well, I don't know how it changes. I don't know how it transpires. But Boudicca, I'm getting strong Catelyn Stark vibes. A woman whose husband, ruling husband has died and she's seeking revenge uh, by attacking those who did it. Yeah, I've got strong vibes between Catelyn and Boudicca. Hearing about these these two, and you're a Briton, we're going hmm. through this history... And a very fundamental part of your personal history as well, at least for your country of origin. What are your feelings on these two? It's hard to shake off the image they've been given through history of uh, Carter Mandau being this horrible old hag of a betrayer who who valued the wealth of Rome over her own people. And it's hard to shake off the idea of Boudicca being this underdog hero who, even though she failed, did huge things for Britain and uh, the Celts of Britain at the time. It's hard to shake off that image. And I do have a soft spot for Boudicca, especially after doing this research. I don't really know too much about her. It's it's easy to see why she's so beloved, why there's been books written about her and films made about her. But as I mentioned, she did some really awful stuff. That stuff, if it's true or not, 
I mean, m- m- most rumours start from somewhere, but the idea of her cutting off a woman's breast and shoving it down her throat, or at least her people doing that, that's really messed up. That's some really awful stuff. That, that's just nothing nice to hear. I mean, they often say history is written by the winner, the victor, and the Romans won, and the Romans won this, were, were the victors here. Yet Boudicca has remained a hero, so it makes you wonder, I wonder... Is there more we don't know about her? Maybe she was maybe maybe she wasn't as nice as the history of books have made her out to be. Maybe Cartamanto had more reason for uh giving that king off to the Romans. We just don't know. I like I like I said, I'm a stickler for the legends. I'm a big fan of Boudicca and think Cartamanto can go f herself. <laughs> <laughs> well, no what what's to be said to that? It's it's interesting because obviously Boudicca is a very upheld figure, uh, mm. one of great interest even all this time. And this is definitely one of those points where, and I feel like this happens a lot today, and it's really quite unfortunate, where you have these major characters from history and people will go and dig into their life and they'll find out that they did some really awful things and that they weren't particularly great people and just just judge them and totally write them off and this is problematic one is because in in our case and and really the best way to 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 study history of course and we have this in the ground rules is not by judging it but the greatest aspiration at least for you and i is to understand it, of course, within the world that it occurred, and so something you know, a, a legend. You know, this really goes in more in the category of legend, but sometimes as great and great usually means in terms of stature, recognition, influence. Great does not always mean you have a saint on hand. That much mm. is certain, and sometimes the closer you look, almost regardless of who it is, you might not always like what you're going to find, but understanding that it's not about judging them necessarily as a person, but in terms of their their stature, their effect, their unique place in history, in their world, on their terms. Mm-hmm. That is very true. Um, you, you can definitely look at most people in history, and the more beloved, like the people are considered absolute perfect people, like... Uh, Gundy, as you mentioned earlier, and you will find some really startling stuff that they caught up to in the past. Yes, it's 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 one of the mm. the realities of the subject we deal with. But we, we, the fact, yeah. but the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, are they still historically significant? Are they still great? Yes, but mm. are they going to be canonized anytime soon? That is yet to be determined. <laughs> And I'd like to thank you very much, Patrick. And we will be back with the answers to your 2010s question we gave in our last episode right after a brief word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Thank you kindly, Anna. So last time, like we said, we wanted your answer to our question, which is, what do you believe the 2010s will be best remembered for, especially in the eyes of future historians. And we got some really, really good replies. Some of them very mm. thoughtful. Some of them are just funny as hell. And and this first one, I, 
I, I, I love this one. This is from Josh in Los Angeles. Quote, the fact that we can't talk about the 60-plus year Korean War ending, the DMZ possibly being torn down, and peace coming to the Korean Peninsula without mentioning Dennis the Worm Rodman. Pretty sure that sums up the 2010 to 2019 decade perfectly. Oh, <laughs> I love that. I think some of that's lost across the Atlantic for me. Is Dennis Rodman a baseball player I saw? Oh boy, no, 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 no. He he he's what he was one of the. Uh, he started out with the Detroit Pistons. That's where he got his nickname, oh, the okay. Worm. And uh, he 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 was a four. He's a retired NBA player, but his most notable years were with the Chicago Bulls, especially when they were doing the repeat, the three P, Michael Jordan, all that kind of mm-hmm. cool stuff. So he's he's a very eccentric figure. No, he did. Michael Jordan okay. went and played minor league baseball and failed like hell. But um, <laughs> but no, Dennis Robin, most notably the Pistons. And the Chicago Bulls. Patrick, you, you got this next one. Yes, and this is quite a long, uh, really thoughtful uh, message from Niklas Ian from Denmark. And they said, It is interesting to see that during the tens, the relationships were made in the aftermath of World War II have begun to weaken with the farewell to the United Kingdom in the EU and the isolation of the United States in recent years with the Trump presidency. Maybe this isolation will have a profound impact that historians will look back at. I would also think the way the technology has taken over our life, maybe for good, maybe for the bad, future historians might look at the 2010s and see this was the start of the full implementation of technology that they will see in their time because this makes a fundamental change in our everyday life and the way we interact towards each other. A good example of this is that a few years ago in high school, I taught some of my friends in history class that the future historian would use tweets as a primary source this was in retaliation 2017-2018 North Korea crisis. This sounds ridiculous to hear, but that might be reality in the future. This is only possible because of this technological revolution in the late noughties and tens. And that was a really profound, interesting uh, response there from Nicholas. That you know, the, I, when I saw that, I was actually taken aback because, in, in addition to it uh, being very well written, it had a very strong sense uh, of context and a, a bigger picture and really i really love the fact that he's absolutely correct future historians most certainly will be using tweets as primary mm-hmm. sources they are already and that's just really really wild to think about and this is a little off topic but you always see people moaning on twitter oh why can't i edit tweets why don't edit tweet button that's the exact reason why Twitter knows how important tweets are. And if you could edit tweets, then, you know, we're back to we're back to Stalin's Russia, aren't we, once again? Well, let's put it this way. Once it's out there, you can edit it all you like, but the Internet <laughs> never forgets. OK, so I got this next one. This is from this is from Alex in Boulder, Colorado. Quote, I do think the start of self-driving cars slash automation on a larger scale might be a big one, given the implications for labor and the economy as a whole. Pretty major global implications within the next two to three decades. And this is great. I so regularly think of self-driving cars because, um, fun fact about me, I don't know how to drive myself. I I haven't learned yet. I'm going to. But I keep Mm. on hoping I can just hold out until self-driving cars become a thing so I don't have to learn. Uh, I I genuinely think once self-driving cars become the norm, like 
our kids of future generations will be shocked that dumb humans with monkey brains were allowed behind the wheels of a car. They'll be like, you were allowed to drive a car? It just wasn't computers. I think it's going to be such a big changing thing. And we're seeing it begin this decade. You know, Patrick, that really does bring me up to kind of an interesting question is I have once asked myself, what will our children and grandchildren 50 years down the road look back at and think was totally insane? Kind of similar, even though I totally support anybody's choice to do whatever they feel proper about looking back to, say, like the 40s, 50s and 60s regarding smoking and the sensibilities that came up around that. If they won't look back at humans driving cars in a similar fashion I, I i genuinely think they will i think like the kids of tomorrow will be like they'll just be shocked so when you have these cars that are all run by computers they're all working with each other to know exactly what the other car is going to do almost like imagine if all the humans driving could read each other's mind it would be like that and just to throw one human driver one actual human brain with all these computer-controlled cars, that'd be havoc. So I genuinely think, I, I I think cars and CGB Grey made this big humans need not apply video about this. I'm just parroting that. <laughs> cars cars will go the same way as horses. People will still use them for transport, but it will just be for leisure. No one actually goes to the shops on a horse. They 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 only ride a horse for fun, and people will go somewhere to ride a car that to drive a car solely for pleasure I, I i genuinely think that will happen there's every good reason in the world to believe that it will and that it's not very far off so this next one comes to us from joel in philadelphia city of brotherly love quote all the truth and honesty of a reality show finely crafted for those who buy into pure crap and served with a glass of fine kool-aid and quote man oh yeah <laughs> talk, talk talk about just absolutely slicing and dicing with words on that one <laughs> salute to Very you much. joel salute to you and these are from the youtube channel ad history of course if you would rather enjoy your podcast uh, on youtube we are on youtube just search ad history on there all our episodes are on YouTube, as well as uh, snippets of just sort of short bursts of episodes that you can just listen to and watch whenever you want to. Yes, you could actually find us at youtube.com slash ADHistoryPC. There you go. Nice and easy to find them there. And this uh, first comment comes from Zachamools on YouTube. And they had to say, I'd say the 2010s would be known for the US President Donald Trump. Burj Khalifa was built in 2010. Hong Kong protests were a big thing, and South Sudan being a new country. That's, that's so true. We've got a whole new country in the 2010s. That doesn't happen too often these days, but South Sudan became a thing in this decade. You know, new things, new history is always happening, and Zakam was very kindly reminded of that. Very well put. So my next quote is from Martin Fox, also on YouTube. Quote, I think the 2010s will be remembered for the rise of identity politics and the rise of fascism with events like Brexit and world leaders like Donald Trump, Putin, Erdogan, Xi, Duterte, Modi, Orban, and probably numerous others, and how those two ideologies have essentially fought each other over the second half of the decade, which has reverted us back to tribalism. End quote. 
there is uh, I, there's part of that I really uh, it's all very interesting but he's the, Martin here is the first one to mention specifically the second half of the decade and that's something I noticed it's like a, fl- a switch was flicked in 2016 and that's just where everything kicked off in that second half like 2010 to 2015 the pot was simmering and there were just big events particularly in my in my country in your country that kicked off in 2016 it very much was a decade of two halves yeah actually you know when i was thinking about this question i was reminded of well first off i I, i've thought of this recent decade as a tale of two decades to be sure it's kind Mm. of hard to imagine sometimes with the same one but when in going through this exercise i was thinking about a really great quote from a british historian who's controversial in his own right known uh as agp Taylor. And his wonderful quote went as follows, never ask historians to predict the future. We have enough trouble predicting the past. <laughs> Very good. That's definitely Very something good. to think about. Mm. And Corte de Poyas, a huge apologies if I pronounce your name wrong, uh, said that the 2010s will be known for cringy YouTuber apologies and people born in the 90s being overly no- nostalgic for the 90s. I can vouch for that. The 90s were amazing. How dare you, Cotter de Poyas? I want to go back to the 90s. It was a simpler time. And I haven't made an apology video yet. Uh, yeah, well, you know, my, my being born uh, in the late 80s, the 90s was most definitely one of the major uh, mm. defining experiences of my childhood. And I absolutely loved it. You know, there's there's any number of things, but when I think back to the 90s of all the things that encompass my childhood, I think the first thing that comes back is Nickelodeon. Yes. Uh, you know, I oh. really think a lot of Nickelodeon. I was definitely that generation that was exposed to the, the, the first legacy, first wave of Nicktoons and all sorts of yeah, different man. stuff. I've always wanted to cry, climb the aggro cl- crag on Global Guts, you know, all these sort of things. <laughs> that I think I would really love to do. I'm still a Ren and Stimpy fan. Uh, Raku's Modern Life has definitely gained an adult <laughs> audience and it most certainly would have then. Uh, but, you know, in, in its own way, it was... Um, it, maybe it's just given how young we were, it seemed like a simpler time. But there was one one classic, classic, reoccurring quote from that entire period. You saw it in media all the time, which is, what? It's the 90s, man. It's the nineties, <laughs> as 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 if that 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 should be some very clearly defining, behavioral changing statement. But meh. something really interesting about this is I noticed this as well in the twenty tens. The nineties really did form their own image because I remember in the two thousands being like, "Oh, the eighties is a fun image, the seventies is a fun image, but the nineties doesn't." So apparently, it takes about twenty years for a decade to get its image that's what i've learned from this so i'm really interested to see what image the 2000s get in the 2010s that will be interesting to see as well i most certainly will be very interested to see that yeah usually uh, a a generation who didn't actually have any conscious memory of it or wasn't even born in it will then kind of latch on to a, a decade that is 20 years behind them and that kind of falls mm. into a a retro vogue it's kind of interesting that happened to to me and people of my age for the 1980s god help us so i was there i don't remember it but i was there yeah see the the 80s to me are really just uh, 
I never lived in the 80s. They are just that caricature to myself. Fair enough. So this is our last one for today. And we can't thank you guys enough for taking the time to do this. Yes, thank you so, so much. It's been great. Yes. And this is from Sapien. Quote, I believe the 2010s will be remembered as a time of crisis and extremism, but also a time of waking up. Parentheses, thinking about Fridays for future here. My perspective is that of a teenager born and raised and still living in Germany. Close quote. Well, I'm always interested in the perspective of Deutschland. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a country with a very rich history. And of course, it's forever changing. And Sapien here seems to be very much aware of that change, especially being a teenager in the 2010s, uh, the latter half of my teenage years in the 2010s. And it, it, it's a damn confusing time being like, a, I don't know what teenager means here, but being 16, being like 14, 15, it's a damn confusing time where you really start to uh, become the person you're going to be. I, I still think I'm 18. Like, I saw something, like, for some reason I saw a casting thing for like, Oh, we need eighteen. I saw on my Facebook. I was like, "Oh, we need eighteen-year-olds." I was like, "Yeah, I could do that. I'm 18. I was like, "Wait, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. No, <laughs> <laughs> it really does." And so, being a teenager, especially in this latter half of the 2010s, you're going to be so strong, and you're going to look back. I think I always ask my mum and dad, "What was it like?" And they're like, "What, what do you mean? What was it like?" And I say to them, "What was it like living under Thatcher?" they were they were the teenagers roughly in those years and the kids of today our future is going to be dictated by their present if that doesn't sound too obnoxious well i think it's plenty accurate and accuracy is all we can ask for also, if you want to help shape our 2020s, then please consider leaving a review and a rating for the podcast in your podcast player of choice. However, that's great to know. But give it many more episodes down the line and we will have our episode about the 2010s. But before we wrap up, we have one more submission. This one's from Evan underscore Mans over on Instagram. Because remember, you can leave it as a comment or even send it directly as a question on Instagram as well. Evan underscore man says, I think the 2010s will be remembered for the rise of meme culture, the idea of big events being made into memes, as well as world leaders such as Trump creating and posting them. Close quote. Well, you know, honestly, I think that's a really good insight. I wouldn't have thought about that, but it's absolutely the truth. And it's a very fascinating cultural revelation. And we thank you, Evan underscore mans, for getting that over to us. For now, let's go back to the years of 51 AD to 60 AD. Yes, indeed. And right after a word from AD. You are listening to the AD History Podcast. Keep up to speed with new episodes by visiting tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast or searching for the show wherever podcasts are found. Once again, Here are Patrick and Paul. Now, Paul, you've got something absolutely fascinating for us today. And it's something I never knew about the Romans, something the Romans invented. I don't think many other people know about this either, because 
it's not the kind of thing you associate as being a Roman invention, but please uh, explain to us. So, I think it is best to set the scene. We are in Alexandria, Egypt, one of the great cosmopolitan centers of culture and learning and commerce in the ancient Mediterranean world. More times than not, Roman leaders have feared that a given emperor or dictator or whoever is in charge calling the shots will then end up moving the capital from Rome to Alexandria, a la Mark Antony and even Caligula, if you can believe it. And in this location, there are many great sites, but there are none that are more famed than the Library of Alexandria, one that in turn, in the future, would end up being incinerated, and so much of humanity's knowledge lost. But before that, in circa 50 AD, there was a scholar and inventor by the name of Hero, better known as either Hero or Huron of Alexandria. And one of the best ways to describe him, and I'm taking a term from you, Patrick, is he was very much one of those all-purpose brain boxes. He simply was a formidable intellect and considered by many perhaps the greatest inventor of the ancient Mediterranean world. And in fact, he didn't just invent, but he also taught. Because in the Library of Alexandria, that the library was only one part of it. They also had the part that, in, translated into modern English, was the museum, where you could also go and attend lectures, and lectures were given. And even though so much of Hero's work that was put pen to papyrus was lost over time, so much of what we know about him actually comes from his lecture notes, if you can believe that. Yes, imagine, imagine an old professor somehow becoming quite famous and that most of what they know about them comes from the lecture they were setting up for you. <laughs> and he was known to have gone and done a great deal of theoretical work, a lot of just plain scholarly work, but he also, like I said, was a prodigious inventor. And he was known for creating a number of things that we today think about as very modern, because indeed, they most certainly were. One of his greatest inventions was what he called the wind wheel, which in fact is better known to us as the wind mill, an absolutely irreplaceable addition to humans becoming more effective and efficient in creating better and better agriculture. He even was known to have created a puppet show that was done entirely mechanically with wheels and pulleys and ropes, and it's said that he even conceived of an early version of the all-important vending machine. But the one thing for which he is best known and in all honesty, this is actually quite bizarre, is an invention known as the aeolipile. 
And what the aeolipile was, it was a proof of concept that Hero had sketched out that was the earliest known incarnation of the steam-powered engine. Now, where do we think about the steam-powered engine most, Patrick? hundreds and thousands of years down the line, nearly 2,000 years, say like the Industrial Revolution, the locomotive, a bit before that. Definitely not in ancient Rome, and that's what shocked me so much about when you sent me over this. I just read the title of your notes, Rome's Forgotten Steam Engine. How, how can you not be intrigued by those four words next to each other? It really is utterly baffling. And so what he sketched out, if I can possibly describe it to you guys with any accuracy, what he sketched out was a hollow metal sphere, probably as big as one you could fit in your hand. And it had two small tubes coming out the side and then turning like an L-pipe outward, and it was open so, any, so something could actually pass through it. It was attached to two small, small, like almost stick-like pillars that it was connected to by a pair of horizontal bars in which it could actually rotate. And when steam was introduced, it caused motion so that it would start turning just in the way that you would think it might, just a spinning ball. And this is really quite bizarre because when we think of the Industrial Revolution, one of the critical aspects of that is the discovery and implementation of the steam engine. And in this case, what is truly amazing about this, and, and indeed an aberration, is you have a concept that was, is so incredibly important to the, the world that we are in now, literally part of one of the major aspects of the brick and mortar that create our HD world, indeed was originally invented 2,000 years ago. Now, to, to make my point here, modern engineers have taken these schematics and they have recreated it, and indeed it works. It, it's certainly uh, very fine as a proof of concept, but in terms of its, indeed, its comparison to what we came up with later, it's, it's very, very different. It's, by many engineers, it's kind of considered inefficient, but it works. It proves the idea, and that's what matters. Which is amazing for, like, 50 AD. That's incredible for 50 AD. It's absolutely stunning. And, and in his creating this, he most certainly was working off the back uh, of scholars and inventors over the last couple of centuries, but ultimately, he's the one who put all the pieces together. You know, there, there's no denying that part of the equation. And so then you have to stop and think, oh, my God, why didn't this entirely revolutionize modern Rome? How did this not over, you know, why didn't this jumpstart the progress and, and civilization and creations that we now enjoy? This is an interesting question. And so the more you begin studying it and the more you begin researching it, and this is one of the reasons I chose it, is a lot of people like 
in this case, because it's almost almost impossible to to not do, is start performing, as we were talking about in our previous segment, counterfactual history or alternate history, because how could you not? But steampunk Romans. <laughs> yeah. Two words. Yes, yes. And so in, in this case, we ask ourselves, of course, as historians for the most part, it's there's like I said earlier, there, there's not much benefit in going into counterfactual history, but it's pretty unavoidable in this case. So really the big question that we need to ask ourselves, Patrick, is one, why didn't anybody else at the time recognize this for the potential that it clearly had? And two, did the Romans have any ability to harness it to a point in which it would have made a significant impact on their world? And I think it's pretty fair to say that, as unfortunate as it is, most people who were aware of this idea and aware of this concept and understood its viability didn't recognize it for what it was. In fact, it was really considered, at best, really more of a novelty, if you were to describe it as anything. And it got totally overlooked, and indeed, downright almost forgotten. You know, we don't really come back to this idea in any significant way for almost 2,000 years. So, Patrick, let's start with the first question. Why is it, do you think, nobody saw the potential of this thing at the time? Why did they just simply see a novelty and nothing more? I was looking at pictures of it. Yeah, well, while you're channel, I'll quickly Google see what this uh, aliopile looked like. And novelty is the best word for it. It is a very bizarre alien-looking thing. If someone showed you a picture of one, you wouldn't say like it doesn't look Roman. It it does look like a very strange thing, and it does it does remind me of a novelty thing. Have you ever seen those? You can buy like a candle, and it's got a little metal-like. Uh, charm on top of it and as you heat up the candle it spins the metal it looks something like that i can easily understand why they wouldn't realize how useful this could be it's just a fun little thing it looks like a desk toy like the um newton's cradle sort of thing you get they probably just thought as oh this is a fun thing they simply may have not realized the potential it had however the question that came to my mind about this is say if they did realize the potential this had do you possibly think the Romans didn't want it? The Romans, despite how clever they were, they were just slaves to the gods. Do you think they thought we can't do, we can't, we shouldn't have this power? They would have heard of the stories of Prometheus and him stealing fire from the gods. Do you think maybe the Romans thought this isn't our will? We shouldn't be playing with science like this. Do you think that could have been a factor, Paul? I think that's unlikely. And the reason I think it's unlikely is these are the same people that, uh, you know, basically came up with the idea and created mass aqueducts in all parts of its empire. You know, scientific advancement was certainly something that was uh, very much encouraged. Um, as far as getting, you know, Prometheus and going too close to the sun, I think they probably look at that in a more literal respect. If indeed somebody found a way to do sustained flight, that I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be cheesy. It's just kind of how I look at it. Oh no, definitely. No, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, the first thing that came to my mind. But there's an episode of Family Guy where Stewie and Brian go to different realities. Oh, Road to Multiverse. That's my favorite episode. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and they go to like one. It's like a really futuristic, like 
tech high technology. I think Brian goes, well, what happened in this, uh, this universe? And Stu goes, oh, they never had religion, so technology advanced way quicker. <laughs> and that's just what came to mind with this. Maybe they thought, no, this isn't what the gods wanted for us. This isn't what Jupiter, he didn't want us to have this, mo- th- this power. So maybe that held it all back. I thought maybe that could have been the issue. This didn't become more popular because I read a book uh, recently called The Short History of the World, amazing book, and it was talking about someone who I'm sure came to mind for yourself as well, Paul, um, when you were learning about here. And that's, of course, Da Vinci, probably the most renowned inventor, artist, genius to ever grace the planet. And there's a lot of stuff he knew but didn't bring to light. In fact, I remember reading this book and it said, he had his own language he wrote in so other people wouldn't find it and claim him a heretic and get him burnt at the stake, whatever they would do. And in his code language in the 1500s or so when he was alive, might have been earlier, might have been later, he had written just the one sentence, I don't believe the sun goes around us. He wrote just that one sentence and that was before there was any idea, you know, then belief was the sun revolved around earth and he had that idea but he didn't share it with everyone because it would have got him brandished by being against God's will, by being against the belief of God. And I just thought maybe that could have come into play here. Well, yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, of course, in for many respects, his life is um, the immediate predecessor, of course, to Galileo Galehi, who took a lot of crap for the whole concept of a heliocentric universe. Um, and, and there's no question about that. And, you know, the, the, there's another way of looking at this. Speaking of da Vinci, say we, and, and him being just this incredible mind, say we were able to send back, say, let's say that my current iPhone and hand it to da Vinci. What would he have been able to make of that? I think it would have, I think it would have, like... I genuinely think it will cause them, him mental harm, like to see that this, I, I don't think it would be incomprehensible. Not even to Da Vinci, they don't even need to go that far back. I think it would have been shocking to see an iPhone, even in like the 50s, that sort of thing. I don't know what it would have done to him. What do you think it would have done to him? Do you think he would have been able to make use of it? Do you think, do you think he would have been able to like take it apart and figure it out how it would work? The thing to consider in this statement is uh, a quote that I'm paraphrasing, but I think most people will get the idea, which is a technology sufficiently advanced demonstrated before a a less a lesser advanced people would indeed to them appear nothing less than magic. Yes, yes, that is the best way to put it. It would have it would have simply seen magic. Yeah, I couldn't put it better myself. And so while the steam engine is not quite the aberration that, you know, Da Vinci holding an iPhone would be, the question is, could they recognize it for what it is? It wouldn't necessarily make sense. Imagine imagine encountering an advanced civilization and we're looking through and examining their technology and we would probably have a very difficult time getting a grasp on it simply because the fundamentals of things like physics, thermodynamics, 
our understanding the universe, having a true conception of gravity, Newtonian physics, all of these things that are so important. And then when you have an aberration like the Aeola pile showing up 2,000 years ago, it's not entirely a surprise that nobody really understood it. Well, first off, it looks like a child's toy. It really it does. It does look like a child's toy, yeah. It looks like a globe gone wrong. Yes, indeed. And in a very cool way, to be sure. But it's very likely simply because it is so beyond the experience and knowledge of those around Hero that it's not a terrible surprise that it didn't exactly get the traction that it would require. In addition, more importantly, having some sort of patron getting behind him to make the, you know, the, the proof of concept and then ultimately progress it onto something much greater, which brings me on to point number two. Even if they understood the potential for this thing to do work in a way that human beings simply were not capable, something that would most definitely outperform many the um, work of many slaves on a single, you know, on a single project. What ability would they have had to cultivate it? So, this is kind of an interesting question. So, when you when you're looking at the big technology tree, you know whether it be you know, Sid Meier's Civilization or Hearts of Iron or Victoria or, uh, you, you know, Europa Universalis. We all know the big technology tree. And to get one of those super advanced, potentially, inventions that can entirely revolutionize your world hundreds, if not thousands of years before you have any ability to understand it. It's almost a cosmic joke. And in this case... Well, think about it. What's one? What's the other really major step forward that's necessary to truly take advantage of this? And it's very simple. There's one major technology above all else, but certainly not alone, and that is the ability to produce steel. I was going to say, like, the metalwork you need to go along with it and huge quantities of it if you want to make any use of it. Absolutely. And and in this case, the Romans were really, really good at metallurgy. All right. They they were well known for that. They did a fine job. But in order to to make that leap, they would have had to, one, come to some really concrete idea of what they needed, in this case, steel, and then ultimately then go and begin mining iron ore and then have the ability to then go and go through the process of making it into steel. In addition to the fact that you figure that an initial product of this on a much grander scale followed to its largely logical conclusion, even that one project, and say it even did, let's, let's extrapolate this further, say that it did create popularity, say that they did manage to make the first real full-size meaningful prototype. That means in order to truly ultimately go and take advantage of this thing, you're ultimately talking about overhauling the Roman economy in general to to an extent that is almost unbelievable. Because I hear so often when this, this invention comes up, and this really comes in a lot of uh, folks that are, are true futurists, of which I'm most certainly a part, but I'm primarily a historian. And and that is, you know, 
well, you know, if they had realized what they had, you know, we could have had the Industrial Revolution and been on the move by 400 A.D. That's, that, 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 that's pretty wild. I, I don't think that is ever really the case here, but it's interesting to think about. It's provocative that you have this amazing possibility and no one's around it. But so it would have changed the Roman economy entirely because then you would have to, you know, create a streamlined process by which they're mining for iron ore and have greater ability to create steel in addition to all the various mechanical necessities to make this work in some sort of meaningful way. So for me, when I'm looking at the Aeola pile, I don't look at it as a novelty because it's too amazing to simply call it a novelty. But like I said, it's something of a cosmic joke. In, in, in some ways, it's, while it's not quite handing a current iPhone to Da Vinci, in many ways, they're not entirely dissimilar in terms of the analogy because... Even a, a brilliant human being like da Vinci, well, he could appreciate it and maybe possibly understand parts of it, given that it's still, you know, it, it, this thing would be so beyond somebody a hundred years ago, let, let alone, you know, going into the Middle Ages. And what good would it have been? Even if he understood it, he would have had no ability to reproduce it or or understand it in the way we need to. Because think about it. If you had an iPhone, you need all the parts, a lot of which they're not even familiar with, or the materials that are necessary to do it. A great deal of fundamental groundwork in electronics. If you want to think how, how recent the whole concept of computer, computers and electronics are, think about this. Any of the major combatants at World War II, if they had as much computing power and sophistication that's in a modern musical birthday card, mm -hmm. it would have changed the balance of the conflict entirely. So that's something to keep in mind here. I remember my history teacher telling me there was more technology and like electronics and just more impressive technology in my iPhone than in the Lunar Lander. So it's just how quickly technology does advance. Is Ex exponentially, phenomenal. in fact. Uh, yeah. if, if they had your phone or my phone, uh, Apollo most certainly would have been um, a very different undertaking, to be sure. So this is all very recent to us. And when you look at the, you know, the, that great technology tree, you know, even if they have the concept, one, you have to identify it, and two, you have to be able to do it. And in the case of the iPhone, all the computing background, the electronics, the ability to mass produce them, satellites, the concept of radio waves, th th these are just countless and, and a very small number, in fact, of inventions that have to be created, implemented, deployed before you ever even get to that point. And that's the same deal when it comes to something like the Aeola pile. So when I hear a lot about the alternate history of this thing, well, it is absolutely amazing. It is also an aberration. And this is simply my personal extrapolation from all of this. And certainly, I'm very interested to hear what you guys think. You know, whether, wherever you're listening, if you're on YouTube, put it down in the comments. We want to know. But obviously, it didn't work out that way. But even if they did, what could they have done about it? It very much is you have just just a core thing. Like you said, you have the iPhone. It is like you said, it's like having an iPhone, but not having anywhere to charge it. It's like, great, I've got this one thing. Now we need the rest of the other stuff it needs. And simply, yeah, I think it was a, like you say, it wasn't a novelty. That doesn't do it justice. It was just ahead of its time, simply put. It was just, 
we, we so often talk about right time, right place. This is just the wrong time and the wrong place to have this invention. And I'd never heard of Hero slash Heron of Alexandria before you mentioned him to me. Um, do you think there's any reason he isn't as remembered as, say, uh, Galileo or Da Vinci or even Thomas Edison? When I think of great inventors, those are the kind of names that come to mind. Uh, Nikola Tesla, obviously, can't forget about him. Um, do you think there's any reason he isn't as highly regarded remembered as other prominent inventors of history? You know, that's a really good question. Certainly that's true on the, on the popular level. You know, that's very true on the popular level because Da Vinci, Galileo... Copernicus, Edison, Tesla, all of these folks are also part of history that's a lot more focused on uh, today in terms of people's interest of history and modernity. So you figure, you know, whether it be Tesla or Edison, you know, they're within a century of us. Uh, the, uh, the Italian Renaissance, of course, is a brilliant part of history. And so naturally, Da Vinci, Copernicus, Galileo, all of those guys are definitely going to get a very large amount of attention simply by virtue of people's interest in those particular times. If you're looking more for historians or just history folks in the know who, who go a little bit further in this, uh, Hero or Huron is, is certainly known. Um, he, does, he certainly doesn't get the, the kind of um, glamour and attention in history as the ones I just mentioned and certainly quite a few others, but that is really unfortunate and also kind of bizarre. If you think about all the things that managed to survive that we know of that he was a predecessor to, not just even talking about the steam engine, for goodness sakes. I mean, the idea of a modern, you know, the idea of a vending machine, the idea yes, of a mechanical yeah. puppet show, these are absolutely wild ideas for his time and place. They, they truly really are. Is. Like, we say often... You'll say, well, if you, if you look like a kid's guide to the Romans, it, one of the first things you'll hear is the Romans invented lots of stuff like we still use to this day. That's like a Roman fact 101. Put a face. So not just the Romans invented all this stuff, put a face to it. Hero slash Heron. He could easily be that face. And he's, bef and I was saying, all these other uh, inventors who are much more well known. Hero was doing this way before them. He was like the OG of this. He was doing this in 50 AD. <laughs> It's just, yes. yeah, it's mind-blowing. He isn't as well-known. As I said, he's still regarded by historians, but if you ask, I always, I always like to think about family fortunes. If you, if famous inventors was a question on family fortunes, Hieron wouldn't be in the top five. Not for most people. Certainly, he probably would not make um, the list in a, in a, in a face-off on family feud. But uh, in this case, there's one other thing that's worth looking at here. Because when it comes to technology, we're dealing with this today, but it's been true throughout history, and that is technology, innovation, and its implementation don't simply have an effect on quality of life or, or economics. They also generally have a definitive political influence as well, it, without a doubt, and, and for many reasons. We, we see this all over the place today. And so we think about where the steam engine really does come into its own 2,000 years later, and you think about the Industrial Revolution, which, for all intents and purposes, is still happening. You know, we're very much in the fourth stage of the Industrial Revolution, and it's still a bit half-baked. We're not quite there. Um, 
but think about all of those, all the political and sociological implications that it meant for our industrial revolution, concepts that involve everything from the nation state to the concept of of class that's quite different than you would have had in the ancient world and especially Rome, that you begin seeing a class consciousness where, you know, you have your workers, you have peasants. I, you know, I don't really want to get into the, the whole Marxist thing, but I think it's well enough to explain it since it's a product of this, which is, you know, the, the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie and th this whole concept of the way due to technology's effect and how it is implemented and how it's created and the people that are tasked with using it and its implication in every single strata of society i mean one of the th one of the things that that marx in particular was doing when whether it be the communist manifesto das kapital whatever a lot of it had to do with observations of labor conditions during uh, the the ver the you know the more mechanized clearly mechanized mass production phase of the industrial revolution and so if you were to put that in the context of rome rome literally would be entirely turned on its head in a way that is completely unpredictable so technology doesn't just have a quality of life and an ingenuity factor it also has distinct political applications and cultural applications, which entirely cause, in many cases, societies to re-examine itself and, by a consequence of that, start slowly ordering themselves in a way that would have been very different to the Roman world, to the point in which it's, it's truly baffling. And as you say, in politics can make progress but also politics can sometimes stop progress as alex mentioned earlier about automated cars this is really bringing this to mind um we are living at a real precipice of change saying the, the early stages of the fourth part of the industrial revolution um automated cars are just a, a, a part of automated everything you know you see it in the supermarket with uh, the self-service sort of scan tills some people don't want that because it does create loss of jobs. It creates societal infrastructure turns on its head. If you've got these remedial working class jobs and if uh, if machines can do these sort of working class jobs like uh, driving or scanning, what happens to the working class? And perhaps someone in Rome thought this about the alia pile. If this becomes a thing, what happens to the slaves, as you mentioned? It really can. Sometimes people don't want that change, even though it's possible. I believe, I remember reading, you might be able to share more light on this. I think it's an American rule. Uh, some states, you have to have someone fill up your car with gas. Am I correct in saying that? Uh, yes, yes. In fact, the one that is closest to myself, of course, is right over the Hudson in New Jersey. It's an mm. interesting experience, um, you know. Interesting experience. Am I, am I correct in saying that's because it's the stop automation? It's literally a law in place to make sure that a human has to do this job. As I understand it, that that law was was in place long before we started having fears over people losing oh, okay. jobs to automation. But certainly, okay. given the evolving nature of technology, a piece of legislation like that begins to take on entirely new meaning. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that came to mind with this, maybe. 
maybe the emperor didn't want he wanted his his slaves still you know just just some extended thinking you know what if that sort of thing about the alien pile but it's it, it's truly fascinating it really is and it's unfortunate that it didn't come to a wider audience like someone uh in the senate or or the princeps later emperor assuming they would have been any more capable of understanding what the hell it was about anyway but <laughs> The fact that in his own circle that he it was never really seized upon is still really quite interesting. So while there most of the talk around the Aeola pile has to do with, oh man, if they took advantage of that, you know, we would have been in the moon 400 years later. You know, it's a piece of alternate history and one that when you really begin breaking down all the variables and the only thing you have to compare it to is the experience of civilization, especially the West, in, in the last 250 or so years, you begin realizing that if indeed that is the case and they really do manage to do it beyond all reasonable expectation and difficulties, it, it, it's to the point where Rome is, is really quite unrecognizable because you can have the, an amazing thing, but if you are in front of a crowd who doesn't get it, or they simply have no ability to cultivate it, then you're, you're pretty much left in the dust. And that's what makes the Aeola pile such an interesting piece of history, that incredible aberration. And that's really the reason why I want to share it, not just because of the, the, the novelty of the fact that it existed, but the fact that if you were to drop a critical piece of the tech tree a couple thousand years earlier, what would it have really meant? And and the answer is, it probably it couldn't really mean very much if they one recognized it and its potential, or two had any ability to step upon it. Because like we're talking about the iPhone, heck, you know we're not even that far removed from the invention of electricity and the ability to widely distribute it. So that that gives a very strong perspective on just how alien. These kind of things are at the wrong place at the wrong time, despite being the amazing thing itself. I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. Steampunk Romans, it could have happened. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, would I have loved to see that. You were listening to the AD History Podcast. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle, at History, as well as on the social media news platform Quartz by searching Paul K. DeCostanzo. Also, take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. If you enjoy AD history and you want to support the show, be sure to leave a glowing five-star review. Or if you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. AD history really does depend on listeners like you leaving reviews and ratings to help support it. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Yes, thank you for listening. Be well. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD history podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. 
Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching ADHistoryPodcast. Easy, really. <laughs> I'm sorry, these witty... Oh, you can cut these witty comments. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. On behalf of Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.